It lies somewhere between the pit of your stomach, your racing heart, and your brain, somehow trying to keep it all together. It's an area we call the adrenaline zone. It takes seven seconds for a message to go one way from the surface to the bottom. That's longer than it takes to communicate with someone on the moon. And so you really are kind of on your own down there. And, and we have lost communications uh, before. And boy, you, you really feel like you're on a different planet when you're down there. I'm retired astronaut, Dr. Sandra Magnus. And I'm retired Navy fighter pilot, Admiral Sandy Winnefeld. We're two adrenaline junkies who love spending time with people who are really passionate about pushing their boundaries as far as possible. Many thanks to our sponsor for this episode, Duncan. Slow-steeped, ultra-smooth Duncan cold brew should be at the top of any adrenaline seeker's checklist. Only one human being has ever been to both the top and the bottom of the world, climbing Mount Everest and exploring the Challenger Deep in the Mariana Trench. Our guest for this episode, Victor Vescovo, has done all of that and more. He also found and filmed one of the most heroic U.S. Navy ships of World War II the USS Johnston, which was lost during the Battle of Leyte Gulf. We caught up with Victor in between missions aboard his deep-sea submersible Limiting Factor to talk about this extreme altitude differential and about what it's actually like to dive to the deepest part of the ocean. Victor, welcome to the Adrenaline Zone. It's great to have you with us today. So, Victor, um, first of all, thank you for, for doing this. We really appreciate it. And I've been looking forward to talking with you for a long time after talking with Kathy and learning a little bit about the kind of things that you've been doing. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation, and I think Sandy is as well. Great. Well, thanks for having me. We'd like to start with growing up, you know, what shaped you and got you excited about exploration, especially in the oceans and the types of things that you're doing now? Part of it has to come from genetics. I think some people are just more naturally predisposed to go and find out what's on the other side of a hill or down the other alley kind of thing. And I certainly was in that category to the uh, great horror of my parents. Probably the most dangerous thing they ever did was give me my first bicycle. And I just uh, took that poor machine uh, wherever I could go in uh, Dallas and other places where I lived. And uh, of course, you know, we went to the beaches and Hawaii and things growing up, but I never really had a deep connection to the ocean. Like many ocean explorers, I just liked going out and, and finding new things. And most of my things were terrestrial growing up. I really went into mountain climbing for several decades, and it wasn't until later that I got into the oceans. So, Victor, you uh, are sort of the sole owner of the Grand Slam of exploration. So, we'll get into some of that during the course of this discussion. But why don't we cover diving first? Can you tell us what got you interested in deep diving submersibles in the first place? Sure. I was heavily into mountaineering for many decades, and I accomplished many of the things I wanted to do in that realm. And I quite honestly was looking for other things to do that were of a relatively extreme nature that I could apply some of the resources in my own nature towards and i was drawn to the ocean you know just hearing the oft-cited statistic that you know 90 percent of the ocean is unexplored you know that certainly rings to uh, someone like me of something that might be worth further investigation and i think i recall reading a news article about richard branson who was actually trying to dive to the bottom of all five of the world's oceans with his five dives project but for technical reasons i don't think they were able to execute it and so i tried to figure out what happened there and what we could learn from it and could I actually undertake that mission? And that's kind of how it started and started talking to some people. And I fortunately had the resources to apply towards it and we got it done. So when you switched your focus from 
mountaineering to diving in the oceans? Did you have to learn new skill sets or, or what were you able to transfer? From- well, that's one thing I love about life in general is that there's always something new to learn. And while things are always different when you undertake a new kind of adventure, whether it be skydiving or skateboarding or what have you, they all kind of rhyme. And they rhyme in the, in the way that you have to find you know, the right experts, find the right equipment, and train yourself to these specifics of that particular discipline. But they are kind of similar. For example, actually uh, undertaking a mountain expedition or even conducting a military operation rhymes a lot with doing a deep dive into the ocean. There's planning. There's collection of intelligence. There's troubleshooting. There's you know, pre-flighting your craft. There's troubleshooting when things go wrong. All those things kind of rhyme. And that's what's kind of exciting about it is just learning new and different tools. I'm Being a pilot actually was one of the best preparations I had for deep ocean diving. So, Victor, diving to the bottom of the ocean some 35, 36,000 feet down is not a trivial matter. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about work with Triton on the, on the technology of the submersible? You know, how does it withstand the pressure? How do you control buoyancy and, and other aspects of that complicated machinery, piece of machinery that takes you down to the bottom of the ocean? Yeah, well, when we started on our project, gosh, it must have been five or six years ago, only two submersibles had ever been to the bottom of Challenger Deep, to the real bottom of the ocean. And that was the Trieste back in 1960, and then James Cameron's Deep Sea Challenger in 2012. And it is extremely difficult to get down there and, and survive. One way to think about it is that when you go from the surface of the planet into space, you're going from one atmospheric pressure to zero. And there are lots of difficulties in doing that. But when you go from the surface of the ocean to the bottom of the ocean, you're going from one atmosphere to 1,100. And you're doing that in salt water, which is very corrosive and electrically conductive, and it's freezing cold. So I'm not going to say it's harder than going to space, but good gracious, there are a lot of technical problems because every single component of that submersible is subjected to those harsh conditions. And the absolute weakest link anywhere is going to be discovered by those conditions and potentially cause a a failure of some kind. So you have to design a lot of fail-safe systems to get you back safely. And that's why I partnered with Triton Submarines because they're the leading commercial producer of submersibles in the world. And this is something they had dreamed about partnering with someone for more than a decade. And they really wanted to undertake the challenge. And so together, we figured out how to do it. So can can you describe a little bit about that? I mean, you're right, going into space is very challenging, but you know, the parameters that you were dealing with and the risk you were trying to manage is is I would say in some cases more difficult, you know, that pressure change alone is is pretty significant. So what sort of technology did you use and how did you manage all that risk in the design of the the vehicle? Well, it's a combination of things like designing a spacecraft or an aircraft. It's not just one thing. It's many things. It's the pressure hole that you had to build and out of what material. The systems integration of connecting these high-powered batteries to the thrusters, to the manipulator arm, to the pumps, all these different things and making sure that those seals are going to survive not just one dive, but multiple dives back and forth to the bottom of the edge because no one had ever done it twice. Even the Trieste and the Deep Sea Challenger never dove to the Challenger Deep again after their one dive. And that was a little bit unnerving, but we really wanted to design the first reusable craft. Just like SpaceX designed the first reusable real rocket, we were trying to do the same thing for the ocean that could repeatedly and reliably go to the bottom of the ocean. And we we actually did that. So just one example of the technical challenge was, what material do you make the pressure hole out of? 
Triton has a lot of experience building acrylic spheres that are completely transparent. So you can see everything. And they wanted to make one out of glass because glass is extremely durable and tough. But the problem there is if there's any imperfection in the glass, it will shatter and you know, you're going to have a very short trip. So we went back and forth. What material should we use? Should we use steel like Jim Cameron did? Well, that has the advantage. It's easy to machine and it's relatively inexpensive, but it's really heavy. Well, what about aluminum? Aluminum's light, but it corrodes in water. Well, what about titanium? Really strong, very light, but gosh, very hard to machine and extremely expensive. So you go back and forth. What are the trade-offs? And it's a classic engineering discussion that you have with the designers as well as the engineers. And eventually you figure out what the best course of action is. And we chose titanium. Okay. I was just going to ask you, titanium, the most expensive, the hardest to machine, yeah. but probably uh, the best approach I can only imagine. Uh, how does how do you control buoyancy? Because you're, you're, you're going through vast changes. Uh, the, the submarine itself is changing shape as it goes down. Uh, how do you manage that? Right. Imagine it a lot like a very, very precise elevator, and it goes up and down in the water, just not up and down in the skyscraper. So when we built the submersible, everything is precisely weighted. So we know the weight of that submersible down plus or minus five kilograms, about 10 pounds on a 12-ton device. And we have to do that because to allow it to go all the way down to the bottom of the ocean, we have to weight it so that it has a little bit of buoyancy when it's sitting on the surface. And then we flood these two very small ballast tanks, and then it's heavier than water, and it starts to sink. What most people don't realize is as, the, as you go deeper and deeper in the water, the water becomes more and more dense because of all the pressure above it. So it actually uh, decreases the buoyancy of the sub. So if you work the numbers just right, the submersible, when it gets to the very, very bottom of the ocean, seven miles down, is almost perfectly neutrally buoyant because while it was sinking at the top, it slows down as it gets to the bottom. And then I have the ability to eject uh, up to 16, 5 kilogram weights that allowed me to precisely get the buoyancy to neutral by the time I get to the bottom. So it's a very gentle descent. And when I get to the bottom, I'm hovering like a helicopter right off the bottom. Just out of curiosity, how many people are in the sub at one time? Is it just you? And how long can you dive for? That was a big discussion I had with Triton and the engineering. They insisted that it had to have two people because they said, Victor, Yes, I know Jim Cameron went down and he had a single person submersible. And that's great for you know doing exploratory dives and going places no human's been before. But you need a pilot and you need a scientist or you need someone else who can experience it, maybe even an artist or someone. That's what really gives it great utility because you need to share the experience with other individuals. And that certainly uh, played a big part when we dove the deepest wreck in history uh, just earlier this year, the USS Johnson, where I was the pilot and I was completely focused on you know, making sure the submersible was safe going around this dangerous wreck. But I had a historian right next to me, and he knew every inch of that vessel and was able to look at the holes and try and recreate what happened to the ship, et cetera. And so there are two people in there, and that has proved to be just a wonderful capability so I can share the experience with others. Like Dr. Kathy Sullivan, the first woman to the bottom of Challenger Deep, she didn't need any training at all. And we were able to get in the sub, and she was able to go down and experience the deep. Well, Victor, I'm going to want to ask you a little more about USS Johnston later on, being a naval officer myself. But I want to ask you first. Go um, Navy, beat Army. <laughs> very well done, <laughs> I might add. Because, uh, uh, tell us, you've got a very interesting name for your submersible. How did you come up with that? Oh, goodness. I get a lot of questions about that. So I'm an enormous consumer of science fiction. I always have been. And 
I read 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea when I was a very young boy and just kept on after that. So one of my favorite series is the Culture series by the unfortunately deceased Scottish author Ian Banks. And in that universe, they have these artificially intelligent spaceships that are enormous, and they're actually more intelligent than humans, but they have very unique personalities, and they're kind of very puckish, and they name themselves, and they give themselves unusual names. And uh, Elon Musk did the same thing when he named his drone ships for the recovery vessels for his rockets, and he named them after ships in this series. And so I continued the tradition, and so the name of the uh, support ship and the submersible are taken from ships in that science fiction series. Sounds a little bit like We Are Legion, We Are Bob, uh, in a way, <laughs> if you've read that science fiction uh, thing. Can, yeah, you, sort of. can you put us inside Limiting Factor? What's it like in that vessel? What can you control? What can you see? You know, How do you maintain situational awareness? How do you maintain communications to the surface? How do you know how deep you are, for that matter? Oh, good gracious. There's so much there. It is a miniature spaceship or aircraft. So it's a lot like operating a business jet, which I, which I do. And so that was just wonderful training, although it hovers like a helicopter. So it's kind of a combination of the two. But we have so many sensors on board the vessel that measure the depth via pressure. We have not just one, but we have four different sensors for that. There are three viewports. And that was a huge debate I had with the designers where they insisted on having three viewports. Obviously, the more viewports you have, the more cutting they have to do into the pressure hull, the more risk there is. But they said, you know, one doesn't cut it, Victor. You need one for the pilot, one for the passenger, and you need one to look straight down. And now that we did it and it works, they were absolutely right. So we are able to see, although it is limited because those portals have to be relatively small, about the size of a dinner plate, because they are withstanding 16,000 pounds per square inch of pressure, which is just an insane amount of pressure on these things. And so when we're going around Iraq or other areas, we have cameras outside the submersible that also give me a little bit of situational awareness, but it is dark and there's a lot of particulate matter in the water. So it can be kind of difficult to see what is happening around you. And especially when you're diving a wreck that has cables and pieces of metal jutting out of it, it can be quite nerve wracking. And you throw in a, a strong current as well that's pushing this 12 ton submersible in unpredictable ways. And yeah, you have your hands full when you're piloting the submersible, but you do have a lot of systems telling you where you are in terms of uh, navigation capability. And you're talking to the surface with an acoustic modem because radio doesn't work. You have to communicate by sound waves. And so you have a lot of systems to help help you achieve your mission. And it's funny, when you're actually down at the very bottom of the ocean, it takes seven seconds for a message to go one way from the surface to the bottom. That's longer than it takes to communicate with someone on the moon. And so you really are kind of on your own down there. And, and we have lost communications uh, before. And boy, you you really feel like you're on a different planet when you're down there in the in the deeps where no one's ever gone before and you, you can't talk to anybody. You know, Victor, I have to laugh. We have those same debates about windows for space vehicles. Right? <laughs> of course. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I mean, talk to any engineer and he says, you do not need a window. You know, you don't need to look out, right? You know, th that, that injects risk into the design. But there's a human element here. That's exactly. the whole point of exploration is to see with your own eyes. I mean, I I've been fortunate. I'm the only person who has with human eyes seen places on this earth no one's ever been to before. And that's exciting. Duncan is made for everyone with the determination, the drive, and the guts to do something new or who wants to push their boundaries. 
It's the fuel for every mission, challenging pursuit or adventure. Whether you're embarking on a new journey or whether you're wrapping up your adventure, you know there'll be a Duncan waiting for you. And if it's speed you're after, order ahead and it'll be ready when you get there. It's simple. In, out, and on your way. You know, we want to get back to some of the, the dive things, but just out of curiosity, how has your perspective changed with these experiences? Because, you know, going into space completely changes your perspective. And I'd be interested to hear what a perspective change from being under the ocean might look like. People have asked me that question. It's a, it's a darn good question. And I've not yet been in the space. Gosh knows I'm trying very hard. And I'm hoping to go up in one of the commercial rockets in the next year or two. I'm, I'm talking to those guys. But when you go into the ocean, it's it's almost like a yin and yang. I believe that being in space is probably similar to like standing on Everest or a high mountain where it's so expansive and it, it can be so bright and it's just so wide and you see so much. The ocean is the opposite where without the lights, you don't see anything. In fact, when you go below a couple thousand meters, there are no photons that are able to penetrate the water. It is the blackest black you can ever see. It is the inverse. But in a almost philosophical way, when you go down to the bottom of the ocean and then you, you turn on the lights and you can see literally where the tectonic plates of the world are slowly crashing into each other, it feels so old. It feels very it's deep is the right word, but uh, it just feels ancient. And it, you just feel the massivity of the earth and how old it is and how, in a way, we're just insignificant in geological time. Whereas in space, everything seems new and bright and fast. The ocean is slow, methodical, deliberate, quiet, peaceful, cold. And so I just feel very privileged that I've been able to directly experience these very intense emotions that are associated with the extremes of our planet. You know, after you have your opportunity to fly in space, I would love to catch up with you again and, and compare perspectives because yeah. I think I think it'll be interesting to to see that. Well, how long you know how long does it take for you to dive down to these deep areas? How fast is the sub? Is it ten minutes? Half an hour? Oh gosh, no. Uh, the sub was designed to go up and down the water column quickly. But we only do about a meter or a meter point two per second going down. So it takes about four hours to go to oh, the wow. bottom of the Challenger Deep. We would typically spend two to four hours on the bottom, depending on the mission, then four hours up. And so it can be a long day, 12 to 14 hours. When we're at the bottom, we don't move that quickly. I think that's another interesting uh, comparison. When you're orbiting the Earth, of course, you're moving at several thousand miles per hour. When you're on the bottom of the ocean, you're maybe moving at about 1.1 miles per hour. <laughs> so it's yeah. just right there, it's just completely different. But the missions are long, but they're doable. And when you're in the submersible, you're not completely cramped. It's like sitting in the cockpit of a business jet. You know, you can stretch your back a little bit. You can't really stand up, but you can stand up in a crouch. And, uh, you know, it's it's certainly doable. And I've, I've, I've now been to the bottom Challenger Deep 12 times. So it's getting to be, you know, straightforward. So Victor, those who operate spacecraft or deep sea submersibles or humble little fighter planes like I did always have to be ready for something to go wrong. <laughs> so when, when you're seven miles below the surface of the ocean, what are the kinds of things that can go wrong and how do you mitigate that risk? Well, Different things can go wrong. And like any good aircraft, uh, we try to anticipate all the things that could go wrong and have many, many backup systems. And I think the fact that I'm still around after diving in these extreme environments for several years now 
is a testament to the safety of the craft that Triton designed and built. And I got to test. In fact, I got a submersible test pilot certification from Triton, which they said is rare to be given out, but that was kind of fun. But yeah, when we were testing the submersible, particularly in its prototype stages, we had a couple of issues. And it's, you know, it's documented in the book about the expedition, et cetera, that at one point we actually had a piece of wire, some insulation, uh, gave off a puff of smoke inside the capsule when we were, you know, 5,000 meters under the water. And, you know, that's obviously extremely disconcerting. But you have the procedures, you know, what do you shut down? How do you go into emergency oxygen? How do you do all these other things? And so you just develop the procedures just like you do for a fighter plane. And when they occur, the training just kicks in and you do the memory items and then you go through the checklist. And if things go according to plan, you'll, you'll make it back safe as they always have. Now, there are certain things, if there's a fundamental structural flaw in the submersible, uh, there'd be a catastrophic incident and I wouldn't even know about it. It'd be over before I could even realize it. But the uh, trying to think through the physics of what would have to go wrong for there to be a catastrophic incident with the submersible, I honestly cannot think of how that would occur. And that's a really good design. When you can design a physical system where the laws of physics would have to be broken for you not to come home. That's a good design. And that's, I think, what we built. So, Victor, you mentioned earlier your, um, I wouldn't say discovery, but the first person to really visit the complete wreck of the USS Johnston, which was kind of an emotional event for me when I heard about it. And I didn't yeah. even know yet that we were going to schedule you for this podcast. It was <laughs> around the 75th anniversary of the Battle of Leyte Gulf. That was a very heroic ship. Can you tell us a little, and you had a historian with you, by the way, can you yeah. tell us a little of that story and what it meant to you to be on that platform? Sure. The uh, The first book I ever checked out of a library, believe it or not, was actually a book about military history. I've always loved reading about history and studying the maps. I mean, I was in the Navy for 20 years. And so I studied naval tactics and battles. And the story of the USS Johnston and what it did, the Battle of the Gulf, is the stuff literally of legend where you had the, the first Native American who was awarded the Medal of Honor for his actions that day, who blindly and immediately attacked the largest battleship ever constructed with his tiny Fletcher-class destroyer. Didn't even wait for orders. He knew what he had to do. And unbelievably, they ended up chasing the Japanese away. Now, they lost a couple of ships, including the Johnston, and he lost his life as well. But the sacrifice they made was just an extraordinary tale. And so when we were diving in the Philippine Trench, which no human had ever visited before, we said, hey, the battlefield of Samar is just you know a day away. We've got to go there. And Bob Kraft and his team did a wonderful job of finding the initial wreckage of what they thought was the Johnson, but they couldn't confirm it because their remotely operated vehicles could only go down about 6,000 or 6,200 meters. They couldn't go any deeper. And they had indications that the majority of the wreck was actually lower. I said, well, you know, I've got an unlimited depth submersible. I could go down there. And it took us a bit of trying and we had to use a lot of open source intelligence, but we found out where, where it was and we found the wreckage. And then we literally saw this deep trough going down the side of an undersea mountain. And we just followed it. I had no idea how deep it was going to go down, but we just kept following it down and down and down. And then out of the gloom, we could see uh, the shape of the majority of the wreck fully intact, the front two thirds of the ship. And then we, yes, we got very excited in the submersible, but we actually saw brilliant white letters, five, five, seven, and that verified it was the Johnston. And then we got to do an incredible survey of it. And because it was so much deeper than the Titanic, 50% deeper than the Titanic, it was even more well-preserved. 
And so we could see every aspect of, of the ship. And also from the holes in the structure, kind of the course of the battle and who she fought. And man, she still looked like she was trying to fight with the guns trained to starboard, the torpedo racks all emptied. Just a hell of a ship. I, I bet the historian was giddy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, he was. He was very excited. Do you have any plans to go back and, and revisit it with, with other people? Or was that sort of a one-time uh, pass? No, it's funny you ask. I mean, there were four ships that were lost on the American side during the battle off Samar. And there is the possibility that one or more of them are even deeper than the Johnston. So we are planning on going back next spring. And I hope to find the wreckage of the whole, the Sammy B. Roberts, a destroyer escort, and even the Gambier Bay, the only aircraft carrier sunk by gunfire in World War II. And we have some other projects we're looking at, but I'm hoping to find all four wrecks. And we're going to be, we are going to be bringing some newly developed technology, some deep ocean sonar that's never been built for this kind of depth before to hopefully find them more easily. So when you're not, looking at wrecks when you go down, what what else have you seen at the bottom of the ocean that is interesting? Because it's probably pretty barren, I imagine. Well, the very deep oceans, which is kind of our specialty, the deep trenches, in many respects, I compare them to the deserts of the uh-huh. terrestrial world. So they're not barren and lifeless. They're just very, very specialized. The geology is fascinating as heck because we get to see where the tectonic plates literally are going into yeah. each other and seeing the different layers and you know these big boulders. I've seen sheer walls 100 meters high at 10,000 meters that people didn't even know that could exist, where the plates are literally shearing off each other. So geo- geologically, it's fascinating. We've seen very interesting life forms. I mean, we've probably discovered over 30 new different species uh, that are very specialized for that environment. They probably have more resemblance to alien creatures we will find on other planets than they do to things in the terrestrial world because of how they have to operate. And then there are all the things you don't see, all the bacteria, all the microbes that are extremely interesting to the scientists because of the extreme conditions in which they exist that you just can't see with the naked eye. But scientifically, they're incredibly useful. And then there's just the the data that we collect. We've collected you know, thousands of miles of water data going all the way down to the bottom of the trenches, which are very useful potentially for building climate models or improving them. And we collected all this data in very rapid time frame with the same instruments, with the same scientists. So anyone will tell you uh, being able to contribute that baseline of data for climate and other uh, ocean models is very, very valuable. So Victor, it wouldn't be fair to our listeners if we only exposed them to deep ocean diving risk. Uh, You've done other things as well. Talk to us a little bit about mountain climbing, where you've been, how you did it, uh, what that was like. Oh my, Uh, mountain climbing. Yeah, that was something I got into when I was 21 years old. I went to East Africa and saw Mount Kilimanjaro and I was told I could hike that mountain if I just hired a guide and got some equipment, which I did. And I got bitten by the bug. So for the next 20 years, I kept going higher and higher. And yeah, I absolutely had some dangerous moments. I actually got seriously injured on one climb. But it was very fun to have an excuse to travel all over the world, meet all sorts of different people and cultures, and really, really push myself mentally and physically in these extremely challenging environments. And make no doubt about it, mountaineering is far more dangerous and far more difficult than deep ocean diving. It is very raw, and many times you can end up in situations 
that are very unhealthy. From fighter pilots to base jumpers to neurosurgeons. Or, you know, the rest of us 9 to 5 hustlers. Everyone needs a bold morning jumpstart or a robust afternoon pick-me-up from a slow-steeped Dunkin' cold brew. Whether looking straight down the face of a thousand-foot cliff or staring wide-eyed into a baffling computer spreadsheet, we all need the same thing. So whatever your pursuit, start with a Dunkin' cold brew. And my understanding is uh, you have been to the top of Everest. Tell us about, did you do it with oxygen, without, were you part of that infamous conga line uh, to get up <laughs> to the top? Uh, and what was the most difficult aspect of that climb for you? Actually, the most difficult part of the climb is actually the preparation. It takes about a year, year and a half to build up your body to physically be able to sustain the punishment that you undergo for two months on that mountain. And it takes two months to climb the mountain properly. And then there's the you know years of training you have to really get into to be good on the mountain. You don't just want to go and you know have their gear and then you're just struggling to get up and endangering yourself and other people. You really want to be a good climber. And so I worked myself up to that. It took me two tries. On the first try, when I went up in 2008, I got frostbite halfway up at Camp Two. I was not feeling well. The I think the mental challenge of it was kind of overwhelming, and I went down. And I've done that on many climbs where if it just didn't feel right, I went down. Maybe that's why I'm still around is I don't have a problem saying, you know, not today. And uh, in 2010, I went back two years later and I was able to climb with a very experienced team. And we did not suffer the conga line because actually when we got to camp four, the last camp before summit, we actually had a, a mini storm come up when we were about to set out. And it was just at the limit of what we could climb in. But we had a very strong team and our Sherpa and our leaders said, you know what, we're going to start. And if it gets worse, we'll come down. But it never got worse. It never got better. But what that did was most teams either turned around or they never even set out. So we had a clear shot to the summit. So it was very difficult going, but we were able to keep moving and keep warm. We got to the summit, could only see about 100, 200 meters. And stayed there 15 minutes and then got the hell out because it's a very dangerous situation. But we were able to get up to the summit and get down. I bet that was a beautiful view. You have taken risks in a bunch of different areas. And you mentioned earlier that, you know, some people probably have a nat you know, their nature drives them to this. I think there's a lot of others who would do it, but don't quite know how to go about it. So how could you encourage or what advice would you have for people who kind of have that seed in them, but aren't quite sure to go about how to manage these risks or approach these risks or, or be comfortable with them? Well, there are two ways. I think one is just simply take baby steps. If you want to really explore your world or you really want to feel more awake, for lack of a better phraseology, it's the one I use, is yeah, you start small like I did on Mount Kilimanjaro. You know, go buy that plane ticket. Go out there. Go, go explore your world. Do not get stuck in your rut. You know, get out there and do things. So make the attempt, make the commitment to do something outside of your comfort zone. Now, that being said, when you do that, there's a very fine line between being reckless and taking calculated risks. And hopefully if there's one thing that I've, that I've done effectively is that I'm a very math-oriented guy. I'm a finance guy. I, I love math. And if you properly assess your risks and calibrate them properly, you can do dangerous things, but in a fairly safe way. Mountaineering is certainly on the outer boundary of that. But think of it like a stunt person. 
where they do things that on film, they look incredibly dangerous. And in fact, many times they are very, very dangerous, but they study these problems for days or weeks. They plan them out. They do all the math. They put in safety precautions. And that's how you want to attempt things that to other people might look reckless or incredibly dangerous. And there is always some element of danger, but you mitigate it as much as you can. So if you live your life like that, you know, you'll get to die in bed. In fact, Brian Gumbel uh, in an interview asked me a hilarious question. He said, you know, do you want to die in bed or do you want to die in adventure doing what you love doing? And I said, no, I actually want to die in bed, but not for the reason you think. And then he actually, he jumped in and said, oh my God, I know why. Because you want to die in bed because you don't want to admit you failed in your risk assessment on an expedition. <laughs> That's exactly right. I never want to get the math wrong. Well, you mentioned uh, financial risk a little bit earlier. You're in private equity. Uh, there's a big difference between losing your life and losing your shirt. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I would Equally imagine- painful. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Probably a little bit of adrenaline involved in both of those. Uh, do you handle that risk any differently, Victor? They're just different. And financial risk is much more cerebral. I mean, it's mathematics. It's trying to assimilate all these different types of information into- something that you can make a decision on, but you do have to make a decision. And people get into information paralysis where they just want more and more and more information, or they just go completely by their gut, but neither one is exactly correct. It's like so many things in life. You just have to take the information that you have, try and be as objective as possible. Beware the bugbear of confirmation bias. Really, really try to be objective and never be afraid to say, you know what? I got new information. I was wrong. And now I'm going to do this. So many people wrap up their egos in the decisions. And I think to be a successful investor or a successful explorer, you cannot do that. You must check your ego at the door and go with what the data says and your training. So of all of the amazing things that you've done, what has been the most impactful and why? Oh, goodness gracious. I'm fortunate that I've, I've had so many very intense and deep experiences that have been very formative. What comes to my mind is actually what's, what's climbing Everest. And I know that a lot of people criticize that now because they're saying, oh, if you just pay enough money or you do this and that, yeah, you can walk up or whatever. And thousands of people have done it. Okay, maybe that's true, but it is not easy. And it is greatly underestimated the physical and mental difficulty of climbing that mountain, especially on a tough day. And just going through the process of building up your body for over a year, of getting the requisite training to do it well, and then, you know, climbing that massive mountain for, you know, a month and a half, two months, and then finally overcoming all the risks and the weather and everything and getting to that summit. Yeah, it was a big deal. It was, it was amazing. So, Victor, you have done an awful lot of very interesting things. You've been the only person, I think, to the bottom of uh, five different oceans. You've been to the top of the world. You've skied uh, at the North Pole, a different kind of top of the world. Um, what is next? What are you thinking about uh, as your next challenge? Well, there are a couple. I still am heavily involved in the operations of the pressure drop and the limiting factor. We're going to keep diving. In fact, we have an expedition planned to dive into the only other 10,000 meter trench that has never been visited by humans, the Kermadec Trench off of New Zealand. There are four of them. We've already dived, I've already dived three of them and gonna hopefully go for the fourth. So that'd be the first time anyone's ever dived all 10,000 meter trenches. And then we're gonna take the ship into the Pacific. We're gonna try and dive a whole bunch of other trenches. I'm hoping to dive every major trench on the planet. And that may happen as early as the end of next year. And no one's ever really dived more than I think 
a couple. <laughs> so that's a great fun exploration to do. And then on the side, I'm working to try and figure out how I can get on a Blue Origin or a Virgin Galactic or SpaceX rocket and go into space. So, Victor, you uh, spent a little bit of time in the U.S. military, a naval intelligence officer. Uh, do you ever have a chance to talk to people in the military about your approach to risk? Well, not formally. I run into veterans and people even on active duty all the time. And if they've heard about what I've done, they, they do ask questions about, you know, risk and how you assess it. But, and I just tell them the same thing, which is, I mean, God, we do that all the time in the military. That's what it's all about. I mean, military operations are just one big, massive set of calculated risks to achieve a mission and objective. That's why it was such great training for all the different things that I did, whether it be mountaineering or deep ocean diving, et cetera. But uh, I have a incredibly deep respect for the disciplines, not just discipline, but disciplines, plural, that the military inculcates in its members. Physical discipline, mental discipline, calculated risk, you know, slow is safe, safe is fast, all those little mantras that you learn in the military, they're great. And I I actually I wish more people in the United States would avail themselves of having the opportunity to serve in the US military because I think it's an extraordinary experience and one of the best things I've ever got to do in my life. Yeah, I think the key is is the culture is what you mentioned earlier, is just using data to make decisions and taking your ego out of it to get the ultimate good. I mean, yeah, the, the other big thing about the military is, I mean, we literally, and I was involved in two shooting conflicts, and, uh, you know, the stakes are enormous. If you make the wrong decision, you know, people actually get really hurt, or they could die. And when you go into the civilian world, People get so wrapped around the axle over the most minor things. And you're like, look, guys, no one literally is dying here. So let's just take a step back and take a breather, okay? And people just don't have that perspective and they need it. I'm yeah. giggling because I, I used this almost that exact same phrase when I was running AIAA and people would come running into my office with their hair on fire. That's <laughs> so because, hilarious. Ex- exactly. People relax, you know, (laughs) it's just money or it's, you know, it's going to be okay. You know, Uh, it was interesting. I was talking to somebody yesterday who likes to do shooting competitions and was competing with a special forces person and, and barely beat him and kind of turned to the special forces person and said, I didn't think I'd be able to beat you. And, and, and the guy said, well, you know, uh, when was the last time you did this when somebody was shooting back at you? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. Uh, A little different. Yeah. Well, well, Victor, this has just been a terrific conversation. I think, um, uh, of all the people we've spoken to too far so far, you have the one, the record for having the most diverse set of risks that you take, but also a very thoughtful (laughs) approach to, to doing it. It's really been, I wish we could spend more time together. It's just been terrific. No worries. No, thank you so much for uh, letting me have a chance to chat to your listeners. Yeah, and I am looking forward to your trip to space just to hear how you integrate that into your, your the perceptions that you've had of the other places. So uh, have fun with that when you do get that opportunity. And thank you again for being here. Of course. No, thank you. That was Victor Vescovo, the only human to climb Mount Everest and explore the deepest parts of the world's oceans. I'm Sandra Magnus. And I'm Sandy Winnefeld. Many thanks to our sponsor, Duncan. Duncan fuels the people who take on every challenge headfirst. And we know the right kind of fuel they need, an ultra-smooth Duncan cold brew. Join us back in the Adrenaline Zone next week for a new episode. If you like our show, be sure to follow us and write a review and tell your friends about us. And if you have a suggestion for an adrenaline seeker we might want to interview, visit our website at theadrenalinezone.com. Adrenaline Zone.